0: In your Bible today, the book of Luke, chapter number 15. The book of Luke, chapter 15, as we work our way through this third gospel. Wonderful, wonderful passage in God's Word today, a very special one. Luke chapter 15. Stand, if you will, with me, and let's read God's Word together, please. Luke chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 1 and 2, and then. We've already covered the intervening verses here, and then we will pick up down in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and he eateth with them. Now, I want you to notice what they were murmuring and griping about with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. This man receiveth sinners. He accepts sinners. And he even fraternizes with them. He fellowships with them. He hangs out with the sinners. This was the accusation against our Lord. And he gave them a parable. In fact, three parables. The first one is the parable the lost sheep, the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and one, uh, the ninety and nine in the fold, and one in the wilderness. And then he gave them the parable of the coin, the ten pieces of silver. One of them lost. And now we come to the third of the parables, verse 11. He said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that befalleth, that falleth to me. And he divided into them his living." And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, but no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, a key phrase, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and against thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring here the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found and they began to be merry. Thank you, and you may be seated. Standing as just a piece of literary uh, literature, this passage has been called by many literary experts the most beautiful story in all of the world. It certainly is Jesus best known and his most loved parable of all the stories that he told, this one is probably best known. Generally speaking, when you hear this preached on, as I've done a number of times in my ministry, you usually hear it preached on from the standpoint of the son. And so he is described in great detail in the picture of a sinner coming home to the Lord. And certainly that's an appropriate way to present it. But Really, I think if you read the passage a number of times, you will find out that the emphasis is more on the father than it is on the son. Now, it's called the prodigal son, and that's accurate. But it could maybe even better be labeled something about the father's heart. So today, I've chosen to call my message A Portrait of a Father's Love. A portrait of a father's love. You want to see a great picture of the heavenly father's love? Then you look at this passage, and boy, does it depict it in a powerful way. The setting here is in verse 1 and 2 that I gave to you. In verse 1 and 2, we find that Jesus is eating a meal, and he's eating with publicans and sinners. Publicans were the tax collectors of that day, known for their dishonesty, and sinners, a general category of people that lived wicked lives. And Jesus is mingling with them. He's fellowshipping with them. And then we see that also in the audience that day, there are publicans, or there are Pharisees and scribes in verse number two. The Pharisees, as you know, were the most moral people maybe that ever lived. They were known for their morality, their, their diligent keeping of the law of the Ten Commandments. And uh, the scribes were the people who were professional copyists of the Bible in those days. And so these are the re- this is the religious crowd. And it's the religious crowd that chooses to criticize and murmur. You see the word murmuring there. They murmured that gossiping there's an undertow of criticism regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to maybe make a little mark in the margin of your Bible because I don't want ever want you to misinterpret the passage and here's the interpretation in general terms. number one, the Father here represents Jesus Christ. Now we instinctively think that represents God, but I believe I can show you that it represents Jesus himself. And secondly, the prodigal represents sinners. The prodigal is a picture of every sinner. And the third category here would be the elder brother, which will come to him tonight. He represents saved people. He represents Christians, believers, or at least religious people. And so, You have these three categories here, and if you understand who they are, then the parable makes breaks down and it makes just really excellent sense. G. Campbell Morgan was one of the most famous preachers of his day in England. He's well known today, even for his books. I have several of the commentaries of G. Campbell Morgan, and I don't know a better writer in all of English literature than G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan summed up this parable in this way. Listen to it. He says, the two sons are but a canvas on which is portrayed the father's heart. Isn't that powerful? The two sons in this parable, the elder son and the prodigal son. By the way, both of them are away from the Lord. We think of the prodigal son being the one down in the hog pen You don't have to go to the hog pen to get backslidden, do you? And so the two sons are but a canvas on which is portrayed the father's heart. A beautiful statement. I want you to notice with me in verses 11 through 16, the prodigal's rebellion, first of all. Number one, the prodigal's rebellion. And so here's this young boy, and he's just fed up. With living in the Father's house. Am I speaking to any young people here today and you're a little fed up of living with mom and daddy? And you've got to a point where it kind of bugs you for you to have to follow their regulations at home and so on? Well, that was the story of this guy. He's fed up with the rules, he's fed up with the religion, he's fed up with the righteousness that they impose in that household. And so he develops a spirit of rebellion. He wants his freedom. He says, I'm going to go where nobody's telling me what time to get up, and I have to make my bed and show up at 11 o'clock at night. I'm sick of this. I'm an old man. Do you not know how old I am? And so he wants his freedom. He's tired of dad telling him what to do. Uh, we had an evangelist come here one time. And he, was, he told us about He said, I, got, I became very, very rebellious when I was a teenager in my late teens. I was drinking and using drugs, and I was doing everything in the world you ought to be doing. And so I told my dad one day, I'm ready for my freedom. I'm going to be my own man. I'm ready to be independent. And he said, I went down to the recruiting station and joined the Marines. Not a good decision that day, huh? You want to live under some regulations. Well, at any rate, that was this young man here, but he didn't join the Marines. He had a real deep seated root problem in his life. I want you to note it. Maybe mark it in your Bible. He was selfish. His root problem was himself, he thought it was his dad. He thought it was the environment at home. His problem is he's selfish. I took my Bible and I looked at the text, and I think I counted seven instances where he says, I, me, my, mine. In other words, it's all about him. He was a product of century 21, wasn't he? Because it was all about him. He wanted his own ideas, his own pleasure regardless And he thought only of himself, and sadly, he didn't think about the consequences of his actions and his decisions upon his dad, on his other brother, and on other people in his life. And so he also, he was kind of uh, forward, I guess, as my mother used to say. He came to his dad, and he said, I demand my inheritance. I want my inheritance. Give me my inheritance portion of the inheritance. Now, reading that in the English Bible, you and I don't get the full import of that. But in that culture, you just didn't do that. You just That was highly, highly irregular. And what he was really doing, it was an insult to his daddy. You know what he was really saying? Dad, let's just act like you're dead. You just don't count anymore. I want what's mine, and then I'm checking out I'm going to do my thing. And he started down a path of very sinful choices. Look in your Bible in verse number 13, the last phrase, he went to a far country, took a journey of many days, and he wasted his substance with riotous living. Wasted his substance, meaning he's a free spender. Every, when I drink, everybody drinks, he said. And everybody, he was the one who paid for the entertainment at the wild parties that they were having. I always thought the word prodigal had to do with his waywardness. And I looked it up in my study this time, and I learned something this week. I learned that the word prodigal means wasteful, extravagantly wasteful. Wastefully extravagant said the dictionary that I was looking in. A prodigal is a person who doesn't think about tomorrow. He just lives for the moment. Immediate gratification. If you spend everything you have, so be it. This was this man. He spent his money on riotous living. Riotous living is dissipation. It's wicked living. It's the wild partying lifestyle. Lots of drinking, lots of immorality, In fact, if you go down to verse 30, which we haven't gotten to this morning, but his brother said he has devoured your living with harlots. And so we know there's a large amount of immorality in this young man's life. And so he's wastefully extravagant, living a life of dissipation, riotous living, wild partying, immorality. And it catches up with him, as it always catches up with people. You expect a Baptist preacher to say that, I know. You expect me to say that on Sunday morning, that this man shouldn't be living this kind of lifestyle. But uh, whether you expect it from a Baptist preacher or not, the laws of nature catch up on you with it, you know. It's always going to come back. This dissipation and wastefulness and extravagance and being the life of the party. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 32, a principle that just never, never changes. The principle is, be sure your sin will what? It'll find you out. And boy, will it find you out. I've got 52 years now of watching that principle work in people's lives. I can promise you I've never seen the exception. What goes around, comes around, cause and effect, kicks in here. And whether it's spiritual or not, it's just a law of nature. Be sure your sin will find you out. It'll find you out in your body. It'll find you out in your mind. It'll find you out in your emotions. It'll find you out in your pocketbook. It'll find you out. If it doesn't find you out today, it'll find you out tomorrow. Be sure your sin will find you out. John Phillips described him like this. His funds ran out, his friends ran off, and the famine sat in. And he got a job now working in a hog pen. What a career, huh? Remember, this is a Jewish boy. We don't eat pork. We don't even raise hogs. Hogs are an unclean animal if we encounter a hog And we're a Jew in those days. We would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing uh, type of thing because the hog was such a filthy, unclean animal, not just physically, but ceremonially. And so he has really, as our RU people say, he has hit bottom. He's about as low as a Jewish boy can go. A Jewish boy... Herding hogs at a hog farm. Ah, what a terrible picture. This is where his sin and his rebellion have brought him. But I want you to notice in verse 17 and beginning there, the second point of my message, number one is the prodigal's rebellion. Number two is the prodigal's return. Let's read about it again. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father? have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose. He came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against I've sinned against heaven, and in thy sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to the servants, notice the father didn't even answer that. He just said to the servants standing by, Bring that best robe that we have and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and be merry, for my son has come home. The one that was lost is now found. The prodigal returned. I've preached a series, a brief series, three or four messages recently on the subject of repentance because it is so often misunderstood and underemphasized, I might add, today in America. One of the greatest definitions of repentance in all the world is found right here in verse number 17. Take your pen or pencil and underscore that in your Bible or write you a note out there in the margin, but don't ever forget it because it's the heart of repentance. Verse 17, and when he came to himself, he had to come to himself before there was any hope in this young man's life. He came to himself a definition of repentance. I define uh, repentance for you as a change of mind and a, a change of mind specifically in three areas of life, a change of mind about sin. Did he change his mind about sin? Look in verse number 18. He says, I have sinned. In fact, Did he change his mind about himself? Yes, he did. Verse 19, I am no more worthy to even be called your son. You see, his whole attitude about his sin changed. I have sinned. He's not so proud of his arrogant, rebellious attitude at this point. Regret has set in. I have sinned. A change of mind about sin. I've sinned against heaven. Notice he understands real well what sin is because all sin is against God. All sin is always against God in every instance. It's not that we just sin against someone else. When I sin against you, I have also sinned against Almighty God. And he understood that. He has a very clear understanding of what sin is. I've sinned against you, my Father. Worse, I've sinned against heaven, against God. In verse 19, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Oh, he's not so arrogant now. Boy, humility has set in. He has humbled himself. In fact, he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Your servants in this household have bread enough and to spare There's more in your garbage can at the end of dinner every night than I could possibly have where I was in that hog pen. So, Father, if you'll just let me come home, you don't have to treat me like a son anymore. Just treat me like one of your servants, and I'll be so, so, so much better off than I was. So he's changed his mind about his sin. He's changed his mind about himself. He changed his mind about the Savior. Verse number 20, he arose and came to his father. He arose and he came to his father. So here's a a wonderful example of full and complete repentance in the life of this prodigal. Now, it doesn't say repentance. The word repentance is not there. But all the things that we look for in repentance are present here in the life of of this man. And so he comes home. What a great reunion day it is. But let me stop and put a warning in here that needs to be mentioned. He came back, but he didn't come back like he went out. He came back, but he didn't come back like he went out. You see, Listen to me, every person in this building, listen to me, listen to me, read my lips. We live in a day when we so trivialize sin, we just think, well, you sin, big deal, shrug your shoulders, flip it off. After all, just pray a prayer and say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, and everything's okay, isn't it? No, it isn't. He went out And he came home, but he didn't come back like he went out. Because, listen to me, sin scars. Sin leaves its scars. And the Father has forgiven him and accepted him and received him. And sin can be forgiven, but the past cannot be changed. I say it again. Sin can be forgiven. But the past cannot be changed. Sin, scars, wasted years cannot be recalled. The Arabic poet Omar Khayyam wrote, and you've heard me use it many times, but it is so true. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. Not all your piety or wit shall lure it back to cancel even half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. Hear me again. The moving finger, the events of life, it writes, the moving finger writes our story. And having writ, it moves on. And not all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, Nor all your tears wash out a word of it. The old hymn says it like this Oh, the years and sin I wasted. Could I but recall them now? I would give them to my Savior. To His will, I'd gladly bow. Oh, the years and sin I wasted. Is there somebody here today and you're away from the Lord? Is there someone here today and you're unsaved? You know in your heart you're not, your, your sins have not been forgiven. You're not right with God. You've not been born again in a real conversion uh, in your life. And you think, I'll just go on. I can do that anytime I want. And let me tell you, like this young man, you'll look back and say, oh, the years and sin I wasted. Oh, the regrets that I have. I thought I could sin and get away with it, but I didn't believe that be sure your sin will find you out. Yes, the prodigal returned, and what a joyful experience it was. What a wonderful day in that house. Kill the fatted calf, that special a little animal, we've been raising him up for a very, very special time like this. Now that day has arrived. Kill that fatted calf. We're going to feast. We're going to be merry. There's going to be music. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be happiness. But down in that boy's heart, oh, if I could just recall what I've lost. The prodigal's rebellion, the prodigal's return. The father's response. That's in verse 20. How did that dad respond? He arose and came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. I'm not worthy to be your son. The father said to him, Bring the best robe and put it on him, and the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. And bring here that fatted calf we've been saving up for and kill it and let us eat and be merry. My son was dead and is alive and he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The party started. Now, the most impressive thing in this parable is not anything I've said up until now because I've focused on the boy, the the sinner, the, the prodigal, whatever you wish to call him. But the most impressive thing in this parable is the father. He's mentioned 12 times in this passage here. The son's only mentioned six or seven times. Even the emphasis of the text itself would indicate that the the most impressive thing here is the attitude of this father. And you know what is so impressive about it? Just think about the story with me now. The father who represents the Lord Jesus Christ for us, he is the one who takes the initiative to heal the relationship and welcome that boy back into the family when the boy comes home. The relationship was not restored just because the boy came home. He could have come home and the father said, I've had it with you. I don't want anything more to do with you. And you wouldn't have the story at all. But that's not the way it turned out. The boy said, I'm going home. I'm going to repent. I've changed my mind. I've made a mess of my life. And he goes home to the father. And instead of meeting a wall of resistance and coldness and anger, what does he find? He finds a dad with open arms. The focus is on the largeness of the Father's heart, not the wickedness of the boy. The big-heartedness of Jesus. Have you ever thought how big-hearted our Savior is? That all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all of the evil, the mistakes, the mess-ups, the blemishes, the warts, all the problems that we all have because of our fallen. Because of our fallenness. If the Heavenly Father accepts us, oh, the largeness of His heart. And He accepts us, and He's the three times holy God of the Old Testament. He is the righteous one. He's the one who never sinned, never thought one sinful thought. But now the sinner comes home, and He's so large hearted, He's so big. He's so great and majestic in every part of his person, and he accepts us. The focus is on the father, not the boy. I want you to note with me what the father did. While he was a great way off, the Scripture says, meaning the father was looking for him. He's a little dot down there on the horizon. The father's sitting up on the hill behind the house, the highest point. Maybe he's got a little thing on the roof, a little place on the roof, because in those days people sat on the roofs of their homes. And he's up there at the highest point he can get, and he's looking down the road, and he sees one day a figure. And people are always walking up and down the road, but he says, he walks like my son. Oh, I believe that's him. And does he wait for the son to come home and ask forgiveness and apologize and and all of that? No, he doesn't. Notice what the Bible says he does here. He has compassion, verse number 20. The father saw him, and he has compassion. Empathy is what we would say today. He has the ability to put himself in the shoes of the boy, to rise above his own personal anger and animosity and feelings, and he has the ability to put himself in that boy's shoes and say, you know what, I know what he did is horrible. I know what he did is wicked, but you know what, he messed up. He was a young man, and now he's coming home. He's so embarrassed. He doesn't know if I'm going to accept him or not. He feels so rejected. He feels so ashamed of himself. Oh, man, he puts himself in the shoes of that boy. He understands the emotions of that young man. And the Bible says he has that empathy, that compassion. And then it says he ran God's urgency to save us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He runs, he falls on his neck, and he kisses him over and over. It's the warmest reception that a dad can give to a son. There are four things I want you to, I hope you'll capture these, write them down or um, remember them if you have a photographic memory. But I don't want you to forget these four things about this passage Years and years and years ago, I heard a preacher preach on it, and this was his whole message. I've refined them. But boy, do I love these. It sums this whole thing up so beautifully. Four things here that picture the gospel. Number one, the Father loved him in spite of his sin. He loved him in spite of his sin. You know, I often try to contrast and compare grace and mercy with you Grace is getting what I don't deserve, unmerited favor. That boy deserved nothing but a kick in the pants from his daddy. If You're going to go on what he deserved. He deserved rejection. He deserved, oh, you've already had your part of the inheritance. You've blown it. Forget it. But that's not the way the Lord Jesus Christ treats us. That's not, the, that's not grace. Grace gives us what we do not deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. The boy didn't deserve forgiveness. And then there's mercy. He showed him mercy. And you see, grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. I deserve punishment. I deserve judgment. I deserve the wrath of God, but that's not what God gives me. He gives me love and forgiveness. So the father, you picture this here, he loved him in spite of his sin, not because of his sin, in spite of his sin. And number two, he accepted him as he was. He didn't say, son, now you have to go get a bath and clean up and put on some fresh clothes. Because very frankly, you stink, you smell like you've been in a hog pen you got to wash up if you're going to stay in this house. None of that. He accepted him as he was, dirt, filth, stench. He accepted all of it. Now, listen to me, Christian, because Baptist churches many times are full of a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites, and we don't want that here. And I don't think in the main we have that here, but it's a good admonition Acceptance of people is not approval of their deeds. Sometimes I've had people, um, I I can hardly believe, you know, the preacher, he's just too soft on people, on certain things they've done. No, I'm not. I can treat somebody with all the love and the grace in the world and despise what they have been doing. Acceptance of people is not approval of their lifestyle. Jesus accepted a guy named Nicodemus who was such a thief that he had to give back all that he would stolen. He was so smitten in his conscience. Jesus accepted Zacchaeus, but he didn't approve of his past sin. Jesus accepted a woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Yes, the woman was immoral, but Jesus didn't throw that up in her face. He said to her simply, go and sin no more. I accept you. I don't necessarily, I don't approve of your past life. Hanging on the cross, there's a criminal, a thief. And the man even says, we indeed receive justly for our deeds. He admitted he deserved the death penalty. But Jesus accepted him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say to him, look, you, you've got to clean up your act before I accept you. Had he done so, there well the man would have perished in hell, wouldn't he? Acceptance of people is not approval of their sin. Let's never forget that. Jesus is trying to teach a lesson here to the most self-righteous people who ever lived. Remember who's in the audience. Verse 1 and verse 2, Pharisees and scribes, and they're murmuring, he hears them. They're nudging each other and talking to each other and the Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm just throwing this in for these boys over here. This self-righteous crowd is looking down their nose at, uh, at everyone else. So number one, he loved him in spite of his sin. And the father's attitude, number two, accepted him as he was, dirt and all. And number three, he loved him too much to let him remain as he was. He loved him too much to let him remain as he was. And here's one of my real problems with the changes we've seen in evangelical Christianity. There was a time in evangelical Christianity 30 or 40 years ago when people got saved, even they expected themselves to clean up their act. And now we have become so broad in many places that, you know, you can profess to be a Christian, And you can even hold high positions of leadership in the church, and yet you can can carry all the baggage that you ever had him with you. There's no demand for you to ever really clean up. The, The father loved this boy too much to let him stand there in his rags and his filth and his stench. The father said, now that I've welcomed you home and kissed you, go inside and Take a bath. That's in the Hebrew there. (laughs) Go inside and take a bath. And we got a brand new robe, the finest robe that money can buy. And that ring I've been saving, I didn't know quite what I was going to do with it. We're going to put it on your hand, which symbolizes you're going to be a member of the family. That's a signet ring. You can stamp wax with that. That signet ring means that you have authority in this family. You're accepted as a son, not as a servant. And that robe represents righteousness. And it represents the fact that we have forgiven you and we look at you just as if you'd never sinned. And servants put some shoes on his feet there because sons wear shoes. Servants don't wear shoes. He loved him too much to let him remain in his filthy rags. And number four, he treated him like he'd never been away. He treated him like he'd never been away. He didn't have to go on and on and earn his way back home. Oh, no. The Father accepted him and treated him like he'd never been away. Turn in your Bible to the book of Micah. Yes, that's a Bible book. The book of Micah. (laughs) And it's back in the Old Testament. And in Micah chapter 7 and verse 19 is one of the most beautiful, beautiful expressions of what I'm saying. I could have just quoted you the verse, but I wanted you to see it because you probably want to mark it in your Bible because it's such a beautiful statement. Micah 7 and 19 He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue, and that has the idea of disregard or tread under, literally. He will subdue our iniquities, and He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that beautiful? He will turn again to us. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities He'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And a guy who loved to fish said, you know what? He'll put all our sins in the deepest part of the ocean, and he'll put a no fishing sign over them. And he doesn't want us to go back and dredge them up. And he doesn't want anybody else to dredge them up and remind us of them. He'll say, they're buried, and they're buried forever. Now, this portion of the parable, we'll finish it tonight, come back at six, and I'll take the other half of it. But this portion of this great parable shows us exactly how the gospel works. And the gospel works through a progress. It's a progression of work in a person's heart. First of all, that boy was pricked in his conscience. He was pricked in his conscience and then he was stirred in his heart. It goes from the conscience to the heart, and then it goes to the mind. And then the truth of God's Word goes from the mind to the will. And when the will is touched, the person acts. So you can sit here today, and your conscience will have been touched, Maybe your heart's stirred. Maybe even your emotions have been touched as you thought about this beautiful portrait of the Father's love. In your mind, you may say, you know what, I really understand that. That makes sense. But until it gets to your will, where you act on it, the rest of it won't count, will it? The will is what acts. When he said, I will arise and go to my father, the conscience had worked on the heart, the heart on the mind, the mind on the will, and the boy got up and came home. Salvation was completed. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, and bow your head in prayer, please.